we are in the Christmas season. Yes. Woo. Been shopping. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Sometimes it's only one person in the family who does all the shopping, right? And then distributes all the gifts that, (laughs) that everyone was supposed to have bought. Well, we are in the Christmas season, and of course, this is the time of year, especially that we, we put our eyes on um, the birth of Christ, worship Him, celebrate Him for everything that He's done for us, what His birth means to us. Um, open, if you brought your Bible with you, open to John chapter 4, verse 23. We're going to just start there. We started a message uh, last week talking about worship what it means to be a true worshiper, to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're going to continue talking around that subject today. John 4.23, if you're there, we have it also up on the screen. I'm there. It says, yet a time, this is Jesus talking. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verse 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Mm. So let's just bow our heads for a moment and pray. Father God, we do come before you. We come before you as your children. We come before you ready to hear your voice your love, your instruction, and even your discipline, Lord. Yes. Because you do discipline those that you love. And our desire, Father God, is to be honest and open before you, to be a true worshiper, to let our lives bring you glory. Father, to let our hearts feel, we want to feel and experience the joy of our salvation that you've brought to us. And so we just give you this time, we set apart the cares other cares in our mind that we might have come in with, and we open up our spirit, we open up our soul to hear from you, Holy Spirit. Teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this scripture tells us that the Father is seeking true worshipers, people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean, to worship God in spirit and in truth? We talked about some of this last week If you weren't here last week and you didn't hear the message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because we covered a number of facets of what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Uh, One of the things we said was worship is not the the three songs that we sing on Sunday. We just, you might say, well, we just got finished worshiping God, but did we, are we really finished worshiping God? (laughs) No, because we also talked about that, that worship is a lifestyle. Right. That as a Christian, our, Romans 12 says that in light of everything that God has done for us, in light of all the mercies that God has shown us, that we should offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice mm-hmm. to God, that this is our reasonable worship to him. Like in other words, in the, in the mind of God, in the big picture of things, in light of everything God has done, we live our lives before God as a life of worship. Yes. And... Uh, so worship, if you we're going to do that, comes from a surrendered heart. Amen? Yes. We have to have a surrendered heart, a heart that desires to honor God and obey Him according to the Word of God. And so we said, too, that worship flows then out of a joy that comes in the celebration of understanding who He is. We cannot really worship God 
and bow down in our heart to the Lord unless we know who he is from scripture. Come on. And so even like the song that we sang this morning, the Revelation song and, and, and some of the verses that Mary read, it helps us to get a picture of the greatness of our God and Amen. who yes. we are bowing down to and surrendering to. And we also said last week that worship will involve a personal sacrifice often on our part. Yes. It'll cost us our feelings at times. You might have come in here this morning and you have other things on your mind. You don't really, you aren't really thinking about the greatness of God. And so it's easy to go, I don't feel like it. And we just, you know, I don't feel like it. But worship isn't about how you feel. Come on. (laughs) Worship involves a personal sacrifice because the God we are worshiping is worthy. Yes. He's holy and he's good and he's righteous. And just like we were saying, he's, he's, he gives us the breath that we have in our lungs. And for that reason, we say, you are worthy. No matter how I feel, you are always good. Right? <laughs> and, it, and I reminded, when we were working on this message, we were reminded of the story of the man, you may have never heard of him, but you will after we describe a little bit of his life, Horatio, his name was Horatio Spafford. Uh, he was the man who wrote the words to the song, It Is Well With My Soul a song that's been sung for a couple hundred years now in churches all over the world and has touched the hearts of people all over the world. Uh, It is well with my soul, he wrote. But listen listen to some of the background of his life. He was born in 1828. He lived in Chicago. He married a woman named Anna. They were both Christians. They, They had five children. He was a wealthy man. He was a lawyer. Uh, he owned a lot of property in, in, a, in, in and around Chicago. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he had friends, like D.L. Moody was a friend of his, the famous evangelist. And so the man was a Christian. He did good works. But, but tragedy struck his house when his four-year-old son, one of his five children, a four-year-old son, died of scarlet fever. Hmm. Okay. And that was awful. You know, you can only imagine the pain and suffering that comes with that. But then a year later, the great Chicago fire happened, and it destroyed much of all of Chicago. Many thousands of people were homeless. Mm -hmm. Much of his property was completely destroyed. So as a businessman, he suffered great loss in that. And so those two years were very difficult. And after two years, uh, he decided to send his family on a holiday, as he called it, to England, get on a ship, we'll all go to England. D.L. Moody was going to be preaching in England, and he said, you know, we could go and enjoy the preaching of D.L. Moody while we're there. And then uh, as he's getting his four children and wife on the ship, some business emergency happened that he was held back. And so he went ahead and sent his wife and children on the ship. He stayed back to take care of business. Um, But what happened on the ship as they were sailing across the ocean towards England was their ship ran into an iron cargo ship. And the ship that his wife and children and about 300 people were on in 12 minutes sunk. And almost, it said that about 300 people were on the ship, over 200 of them perished. Four of the ones that perished were his children. Yes. She lived, she survived, but the four children perished in the ocean. And when she reached Wales, um, she immediately sent a telegraph back to him 
And some of the writing on the telegraph that they have, that they know that she said was saved alone, what shall I do? And so, of course, when he gets this telegraph, uh, he immediately sets off to mm-hmm. sail you know, across the ocean to be reunited with his wife. And then while he's sailing across in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, at some point in one of the days, the captain came to him and said, according to my charts, and he points out over the water and he says, that's right out where we are. This is the spot where the ships collided and where, you know, the ship that your wife and children were on went down. And so, you know, he's standing there looking out at that spot. You can imagine the grief and the suffering of that. But it is said that he went back to his cabin at that point and penned the words to this to the melody, to the hymn, it is well with my soul. And so out of his deep suffering, yet abiding faith in God, and we're going to just read you the words. I'm sure most everybody is familiar with this song and with the words to this song. We won't sing it, but these are the words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let the blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss, this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. The Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He goes on to say that uh, he wrote his uh, wife's, Anna's half-sister, and he re- the telegram read this. On Thursday, we passed over the spot where she sank down in mid-ocean, the water three miles deep. But I do not think that our dear ones are there. They are safe, my dear lambs. Now, there's more to this story. Eventually, they they moved to Jerusalem and had three more children. They're in Jerusalem helping the poor and the needy, the homeless. And uh, so he wrote more more hymns. Out of all his tragedy, he's still writing hymns. His faith is secure. He's assured. He had three more children. One of them was a boy. But when that boy reached four years old, he died. And then he himself died right before he was 60 of malaria. So we we think of that. We, We stop, we ponder the meaning of true worship as a living sacrifice. You know, and as we consider this man's life and his response to these severe and difficult trials and the suffering that he had uh, we should compare our lives yeah i mean it 
when you just hear that, doesn't it bring, it strikes conviction in your heart. I know as we were reading it, we were just struck with such mm-hmm. conviction. It should, it disturbs your soul. It should disturb our soul. Yes. And trouble us. You say, why would you say that, Pastor? <laughs> but it should trouble us deeply and cause ourselves to ask God and ourselves, how would I respond? How would you respond if this were your life? Would you be able to sit down and, and <laughs> worship? Because that hymn that he wrote, those words were a worship. That was a worship to God. Yes. In the midst of his suffering. Would I do that? As you're reading about his life, I'm thinking, would I do that? And when I look at his life, I look at the meekness. Yes. He could have yelled out over the railing of that ship. He could have railed at the captain. He could have railed at God. And yet the meekness and the humility, the steadfastness in his faith to God in the midst of that kind of personal tragedy. When you look at their lives, you know, and I think it causes us to look at them in adoration. You go, oh my, Mm -hmm. there's there's a person, a person of God. But it should also cause us to reflect on our own life. Yes. And judge ourselves. Judge Judge our our own own heart. heart. Yes. You know, it... We look at his life, we look at his heart, and then we compare that type of mindset to the culture that we're living in today. Yeah. Now, blatant sin, hatred, you disagree with me, goodbye, I cancel you. Or, or this, it's way too hard. Or I want it my way. I demand my rights. My opinion should trump everybody else's. It's not fair. I don't like it, so I quit. (laughs) That's a culture we live in. And folks, those similar sins, those attitudes, it dwells in the church also. And we're, we're talking about true worshipers. I think everybody in here wants to be a true worshiper of God. If we want revival, if we want to see more of God manifested in our own personal lives, we want to see more power in the church to do the will of God in this whole world, not just here, but in the whole world. We honestly, we need some heart purification. People give up so easily today, get so offended so easily today. They quit their commitment so easy. You know, so we got to look at ourselves. How do we deal when we don't get the answers from God when we pray? We don't get it when we ask. We don't get it the way we want to. Do, do we still worship God? Are we humble enough like this gentleman to worship him in trials, in tribulation, in difficulty? How easy is it for people to lose their commitment to the local church? It's, I don't feel like coming. Well, it's time to move on. I've got everything I could from this church. (laughs) 
or I didn't get the recognition that I deserved, so I left. You know, people in churches hold grudges, the unforgiveness, and people think nothing of it. Yeah, it's time to judge ourselves. And, and I think to myself, are, are we, are you, are we, I ask as a whole, are we troubled by it? Mm-hmm. We should be. We should be. That attitudes and, and, and pride and self-centeredness, willingness to, or unwillingness to forgive. The Bible says that we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, mm-hmm. Right. Because it's not Christ-like. Right. But are we troubled by those own attitudes in our own heart? Do we search our heart and ask ourselves about these things? Do you wrestle with that yeah. kind of sin? I know I have. Yeah. I know God has checked me on it over the years. There's a lot of opportunity <laughs> to be misunderstood and to walk in unforgiveness and you don't understand and let me say my way and I, all those things. You wrestle with it. We must wrestle with it yes. because it's sin. And this is what the Lord wants us to see. Do, do we call it sin, my attitude, my bad attitude? And do I want to be free of it? Yes. Do I want to be free or do I, we, we used to say in the, <laughs> we pet our dragon and we're holding on to it. It's biting us. It's choking us. We're petting it. Don't let me, you know, I'm not letting go of it because I'm Right. And the Lord is saying, call it sin yes. and let go of it. Because you can always justify it. We, it's not really a matter of it wasn't fair. Life isn't fair. We have Come to on. just get over life isn't fair. Life wasn't fair to Horatio Spafford and his family. But it didn't stop him from worshiping. Yeah. And you could always just choose to justify it. And this is what you see the culture is doing. Well, I'm just going to get on YouTube and make a video and tell my story and tell how bad, wrong I was treated and see how many followers I get. And, but of course, it's never the whole story. <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't you know that? <laughs> and truly, like in light of the forgiveness that God has given us, and I think this is the biggest revelation that he needs to keep showing us that we were all guilty of sin. Yes. And in light of the forgiveness that God has shown us, we should be the people most willing to be quick to forgive. Slow to anger. It says slow to speak and quick to forgive. And I think sometimes we, we just do, it's the opposite. <laughs> we're, we're quick to anger, quick to speak, and very slow sometimes to forgive. But our nation, look at, this, look at our world. Our nation is in trouble. The world's in trouble. Our homes are in trouble. The schools are in trouble. Yes. You know, we've lost our moorings, have we not? Socially, morally, politically. The government answer, well, the government really doesn't have an answer. But their answer, like, it's just, we're going to spend more and we're going to stimulate and revive everything. We're going to give to everything and revive it. <laughs> but, you know, I think to myself, the kind of stimulation that we need is the kind that revives our heart towards yes. God. We need a revival of our heart towards God to Amen. just get our perspective right. Come on. Come and on. And if we want revival, do we want it? Yes. What is revival? The word revival means awakening of something that's been dead. Yes. 
We need revival. We need to understand the fear of the Lord, who we worship. Come on. Lift our hands, express our love and devotion and adoration to God because the world is screaming to their idols, if you will, loud and clear. Loud. And if we want revival, if we want to be awakened to more of God, you know, we, we want to see more of God. We want more transformation in our homes yes. and in our personal lives. We want to see real transformation happen in people in the church and, and even in the world. It's going to begin in your heart and my heart. That's right. It's going to begin in the church. God's, it's, scripture says in 1 Peter 4, the judgment begins with the house of God, of the Lord. Yeah. That's it's going right. to begin with us. He's going to look at us and say, what about your heart towards me? You're the ones called to be. We're called to be salt and light in the world. Yes. What about and your it, heart it, toward one another? And a true worshiper, here's the thing. A true worshiper is not some perfect person. Oh, man. We're going to find that out today. It's just someone who's honest before God. And allowing the Lord to judge their heart and say, change me. There's sin here. I need need change. I need your grace. They desire to obey and go God's way. And so we're going to look at King David, who who was a worshiper of God. King David. You know, we often think that when we read the stories here in the Bible or we hear about certain characters in the Bible, we think that these guys are just perfect people. We lift them above ourselves. They're amazing and look at me. But it's hardly the case. If you really read the Bible, you're going to find out that God chooses imperfect people. Yeah. So we all qualify. Yeah. We're going to read about King David today. And the Bible calls in Acts chapter 4, it says that King David's a man after God's own heart. (laughs) And so we automatically think, well, of course, he's just, he's King David. He's perfect. He killed Goliath, you know, all that stuff. He's, he's, we think they're real saints. Well, in truth, they are saints because they're, and you're a saint. Did you know you're a saint? You are a saint. You're a saint of the Holy One. (laughs) We're going to read about King David. And uh, we think this guy's life was just pristine, perfect, and floating on. Exemplary. Yes. (laughs) It's hardly the case, though. You know, we we honestly, we, we learn a lot about David's character in the book of Psalms. Because he wrote quite a few of those Psalms. And he was inspired by God to reveal it all. The good, the bad, the ugly. And there was ugly, folks. It was really ugly. And it was was displayed for the whole world to see. It was displayed that we can see it 5,000 years later. We get to see what's happened in his life. And it reveals a life of success and a life of utter failure. So why, why, why does God do this? Why does God write down all the ugly details of a person's life? <laughs> so the generation after generation, mm-hmm. everybody's looking at it. Everybody's reading it. You, you tend to think, wouldn't God in your mercy, wouldn't you just want to cover that over? Kind of like what we want to do with our sin, just ignore it. Let's just excuse it, get by with it. Wouldn't it be just nicer and easier? Yeah, it would be. But the problem is generation after generation, people come into the world 
just as plagued by sin as David was. That's right. Struggle with sin just like David did. And so what God does is he wants future generations to relate and learn from a person's life. This is why it's recorded for us. What not to do and what to do. Right. So that we can avoid the things that, even the consequences of sin. Because even when God forgives and, and get, has mercy on our sin and we repent, sometimes the consequences that we're going to see in David's life, they still lasted to yes. the next generation. It doesn't mean that everything just, poof, turns into some kind of glorious thing in your life. And so God records the details and the consequences mm-hmm. of them so that it can be almost a sober warning for us that sin can have a long-term effect, even in the next generation. Yes. And uh, so if you turn, if you have your Bibles again, we're going to read, we're not going to put it up on PowerPoint, but this story comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. You might have heard this. Bathsheba was married to Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He had soldiers trained for battle. Mm -hmm. Uriah was a friend. He was considered one of David's closer friends, his mighty men. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it talks about uh, David normally, this was the time when kings went out to war, but David stayed behind. He did not go to the battlefield. He sent his men out, but he stayed in the palace. Big mistake. Yeah. He should have been with the men on the battlefield. He had too much time on his hands, really, is what happened. And so he's walking on the court, uh, in this court, on the roof of the courtyard of his palace, and he sees Bathsheba in the distance, and she's bathing, and he considers her a beautiful woman. And so lust arises in his heart. Mm -hmm. He has his people send for her, bring her to me. She comes to the palace, they have sex, she conceives in, in adultery because she's a married woman, right. he's married, and so in that adulterous situation, a baby is conceived. Now to hide their sin, David uh, calls Uriah back from the battlefield, calls him back, and he gives him a big gift and tell him, go home and be with your wife. You know, this, and of course, we all know what the secret motivation was, is that they would have sex so that Uriah would think what was conceived was actually his. But Uriah refuses. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of honor. He's actually sleeping on the palace steps. And he, he, he refuses to go. And he, here's what he says. He says, I cannot go to my house while the Ark of the Covenant and my fellow soldiers are camping in the open field. Now, David has to scurry around, so he tries a couple more nights. He, you know, he, he, he says, you know, come on back over. And so he wines and dines him and he gets him drunk. David gets him drunk thinking that this is, uh, this is the ticket. He's going to go home and they're going to have sex. And it's like, this is, this is the way it goes. But Uriah held to his honor and his commitment. Uriah was a faithful man, not just to David, but to God Almighty. 
So David is all worked up on this. He's distraught. And so he compounds his sin of adultery and does something just as equally as evil and sinful. He calls Uriah back and he gives Uriah a note to hand to the general Joab. And the note note. in a sealed note. Uriah would not know what was written in there. He carries his own death sentence back to the general. And he says, Put Uriah at the fiercest battle and then withdraw all the troops from him so Uriah would die in battle. See, David's pride, his power, his arrogance, thought his problem was solved. (laughs) But here's the thing. God knew what was happening. We can't hide anything from God. The Bible declares everything is naked and open before God. Our life is an open book to him. Our thoughts are an open book to him. Our motivations are an open book to him. Everything. Everybody say everything. Everything. Yes. But here's David. He's ordained by God to be in the lineage of Jesus Christ. But God would confront David in his sin. And here's what God does. He'll confront all of us, in our sin to give us an opportunity to repent and be forgiven and be cleansed from that sin. Yeah. This is great mercy. Yes. Great mercy. So again, let's remember that David was a true worshiper of God. Mm -hmm. He was a shepherd. He was a king. He was a warrior, but he was a poet. Also, he wrote... Many of the 150 psalms, David wrote them. They, they put these psalms to music. They sang right. them in the temple. They sang them in their homes. And so often when you read the book of Psalms, you, you're reading the height and the depth. <laughs> you're reading about the highest glory of God and the beauty and the almightiness of God. And then you also, it seems as though, because David, especially when he writes, he like lays bare the mm-hmm. brokenness of his soul, like the confession of my sin and my neediness and the need for mercy from God. And this is really the true heart of a worshiper. Yes. This is what we're getting to. The, the heart of a true worshiper recognizes their need, recognizes wh- how they stand before God, that yes, We often talk about God has raised us up to sit with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But we also need to look at the parts of our lives that are sinful, that God sees us through the blood of Christ, but he doesn't doesn't leave us in our sinful estate. He wants to take us up higher. And so he's going to get David to examine his heart. He must to, to help him confess his sin and repent of his sin. And so we're going to read from 2 Samuel. I'm going to read it. 12. Starting, yes, chapter 12. Now, how the Lord does this is he sends Nathan the prophet to David. And so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And when he came to him, he said, Nathan begins to tell him this parable, like a story, to get David's attention. He said, there were two men in a certain town One was rich and the other one was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him. It grew up with his children. 
It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a little daughter to him. And now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep and cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who would come. Instead, he took the other man's little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who would come to him. Now David's listening to the story and he butts in. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing. He had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord, he says. He did this without rationalizing shifting the blame to others. David saw the desperate situation he was in before God. (laughs) Sinner who is needing mercy. And really acknowledging our sin before God, it brings mercy to us. By confessing our sins, we step into that place to experience God's mercy, his love, forgiveness, and his goodness. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Because in the law, in the Ten Commandments, in the law of Leviticus, if you committed adultery, you were supposed to be killed by stoning. And David lived for the same reason we live. God is good. He is merciful. His mercy endures forever. Going on to verse 14. But because by doing this, you've shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. The Lord forgave Dave, David, King David, but he didn't remove all the consequences from that action. Verse 15, after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. If you were here last week, I mentioned David in this episode about when he uh, found out that his child had died, that he was able to 
give a sacrifice of worship to him in a hard place. The, uh, the child became ill. David prayed and fasted that maybe God would relent from that. He pleaded with he God. He pleaded with God. He laid prostrate, and it was on the seventh day. David did this for seven days. And on the seventh day, the child died. So now imagine the guilt, the shame, the regret, the sadness, and, and really the mourning that laid heavy on David. When David knew the child had died, verse 20 says that David got up from the ground. Afterwards, he washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Yeah. And his, his servants were surprised, thought that he would continue on. But David's answer to them, can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So in the midst of David's brokenness and contriteness of heart, he mm -hmm. writes Psalm 51. Right, right. Psalm 51, Let's he pens Psalm there. 51. Turn there, mark it in your Bible. This is awesome. You know, sometimes when we read the Bible, you may read Kings and Chronicles, and you don't put together where some of these Psalms that David has written this is coming out. This is sort of like Horatio Spafford. He writes, it is well with my soul. David pens Psalm 51 here. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? You know, just put yourself in his place. He's saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my shameful deeds. Mm. He's confessing his sin. Yes. They haunt me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Yes. Surely I was born a sinner, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire honesty from the heart. So you can teach me wisdom in the secret heart. There you go. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God. And renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to obey you. Mm. Then I will teach your ways to sinners so that sinners will turn back to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your righteousness and forgiveness. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You, O oh God, will not despise. So what made David a man after God's own heart? He didn't attempt to make excuses for this. He didn't blur the severity of his crimes. Rather, he was open and he, he confessed his wrong. 
<laughs> and you know, sometimes we, we, we can do all kind of things for God. We could, come to, we could come to church, we could serve, you know, we could have our quiet time, we could say, read our prayers, uh-huh. and, and yet we're still skirting some real hidden issue involving sin in our life before God. And God is saying, I want you to be open with me. I want you to be honest with me. I want you to come to me, confess your sin. And our relationship with God is all about the heart. Yes. He's after our truthfulness and honesty. And sometimes we think, well, we're afraid to go there because we we really haven't experienced his great mercy. But when you read this psalm and you understand David's life, you realize God is a God of mercy and salvation. And very often it's going to restore the joy of our salvation with the Lord. So this story, you know, is is a story of warning of sin and judgment for sin but it's also a story that talks about restoring David's joy of salvation. <laughs> because after he repented, I know, according to other psalms, that joy came back to him. And so we, we want to pr- play a song. Yes. Um, it's called Psalm 51. It's by Shane and Shane as we close out the service. Just read the words of the lyrics. Worship God from your heart. Let him examine your heart. Yes. If there are ways and sinful things in your heart that you need to give up to the Lord, confess to the Lord, let this be a, a time of really of confession and repentance. And restoration. Yeah. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Take 
that you dwell on the inside of us. Thank you in the new covenant. The Lord won't take his spirit away from us. But uh, that broken fellowship, that broken fellowship though is what is painful. And so I pray, Father, I pray Holy Spirit that you come and minister the message, the words of this message, the story of this message into the hearts of the people, into our hearts, Lord. Yes. Help us understand your love for us, your great love, your holiness. And that we're one with you. And you desire for us, Lord, better things. To put away sin in our life, to call it sin ask you for grace to change. Yes. That your mercy and love endures forever towards us. But you're asking us to draw nigh to you. Yes. In confession of sin, in honesty, 
and in repentance, a desire to turn and go your way, walk with you. So I, I pray, Father, that this message today ministered to the hearts of the people, that you're speaking tenderly, Holy yeah. Spirit, but yet with conviction to draw us closer to you. Help us to be conformed more and more to your image and likeness. Revive us, O Lord. Yes. Revive us. Open our eyes to see who we really are in you. here today and you haven't surrendered your life completely to Jesus he's wooing you he's calling you because he wants to do you good he already knows what you've done he already knows the habits but he's here to set you free he's here to set you free bring liberty to your soul cleanse you from your sin if you want to give your life to Jesus I ask you to simply raise your hand so I can see it and we're going to pray a prayer and a supernatural thing will occur that you will be what the Bible calls born again You'll be completely forgiven and the life of God will come into your heart, into your spirit. Anyone at all. Very good. 